You're listening to Inside Outside Innovation, episode 66. David Robertson, author of Brick by Brick and formerly at Wharton, just recently accepted a new position at MIT's Sloan School. He also hosts a podcast of his own called Innovation Navigation that's available on SiriusXM channel 111. David and Josh sat down to talk about what third wave innovation really is and examples from GoPro to Lego about the possibilities for success and failure that go along with incremental innovation. You can find David's contact information in the show notes and more details about his podcast. Hi there, everyone. I'm Victory, the producer of Inside Outside Innovation, the podcast that brings you the latest insights from people who know the most about building lean businesses, innovating within corporations, and disrupting industries with passion and precision. If you had to start to put together your first list for the greatest topics that you need to bring to executives, what would be on that list? Oh, I I would like to talk to them about the ideas in the book. I mean, I would like to talk to them about how every innovation leader needs a complete toolkit of different types of innovation. You know, you should know what disruption is and how it works, and and you should be comfortable putting a team off in a separate building to think about disruptive influences, disruptive future technologies that could affect your business. But you should also be, you know, looking for blue ocean opportunities and continuously improving your current technologies and maybe looking at a lean startup that could affect your business and looking at innovating around your current product to make it more compelling. And I think that's one of the things that I appreciated about your book, Dave, is that we have the groups who will talk about and and put structures of Horizon 1, 2, and 3, or at least trying to bucket them into three different areas. But then in practice, what I see a lot of organizations do is just say, it's a lot easier to talk about core or sustaining innovation and disruptive innovation. And whether you would agree or not, what I felt one of the things that I really appreciated about what you're doing is, is almost championing some of those adjacent type innovation things that are kind of in the middle that are are very much that innovation around the core product, whether it's things around the experience that they might do or other ancillary things around the product itself. Do you think that sometimes gets overlooked, kind of that middle ground of innovation? Oh, I think so. Yeah, I think far too often. And and, uh, it's the fault of people like you and me, you know, people Mm -hmm. who write about innovation and do podcasts about innovation and speak about innovation. And too often, there's just too much of this talk about disruption and revolutionary innovation. And I think that that uh, is an important type of innovation, but I think it's relatively rare. I mean, how many stories of disruption can you tell? You know, once you've exhausted the Kodak and the Encyclopedia Britannica and the yeah, I mean, yeah. there's there's a few that we always hear, but they're few and far between. I completely agree. One of the things, especially when we think about that middle ground of innovation that I love and uh, that you have gotten quite a bit of fame for is uh, your work on Lego. Could you just share a little bit more about some of the things that fascinate you most about Lego and maybe some of the lessons that innovators could apply from that? Yeah, so this new book came out of the Lego story, and it really was in response to kind of a a challenge that I would get, which is, how would we do what Lego did? And when I really looked into what Lego had done and tried to say, you know, this is this is their approach to innovation, I saw a lot of other companies doing it too. And so, you know, I think uh, 
Lego is this wonderful Greek tragedy of a company that mm-hmm. rose up and then you know did so well for so long and then got complacent and even arrogant and then fell because of it and almost died and you know almost went bankrupt in their case but learned something from that brush with bankruptcy and came back stronger than ever and and that is the the arc of a typical greek tragedy but it's also the arc of lego and or another way to put it is that you know lego hit on this formula for innovation after trying and failing at every other way of innovating <laughs> so sure you know you got to give them credit for you know they've they've tried everything possible and the the thing that seemed really seemed to work is this uh, this type of innovation that i talk about in the book Absolutely. You also draw some great contrasts in the book of thinking of how you might go about not just completely inventing a new category, but kind of the story on GoPro, right? And and how they looked at particular the innovation around the camera space. Can you share a little bit more about that? Yeah. You know, I think GoPro is a wonderful example of how a innovation leader needs to really understand different types of innovation because you know, they, they start off as one type of revolutionary innovation, which is not disruptive at all. It's more blue ocean. And by that, and, and literally, right? I mean, it was started by a surfer <laughs> who wanted to capture his greatest surfing adventures. And so he creates this waterproof camera and a, a way of strapping it on his surfboard. And and so this idea of having a, a video camera that was rugged and waterproof was satisfying a need that nobody had satisfied before. So it was blue ocean type of horizon three innovation, you know, satisfying a need that nobody had satisfied before. And so he did really well and GoPro did really well in its early years. But then they started doing what I call the third way innovation, not incremental and not radical, but just innovating around the product. And so created a whole set of different mounts. So you can put a GoPro on your surfboard, but you can also put it on your helmet, on your chest, on your dog, on your, uh, and just about anything. There's a GoPro mount that will help you mount your camera on it. And then created software so that you could take your footage and turn it into a great music video and a smartphone app so that you could control the camera. And then a social media site so you could share your great adventures and even make some money if they were especially mm-hmm. good. And so all that really created this whole portfolio of innovations that uh, let them hold off competition from Sony and many others. And so this kind of second phase of GoPro's life is this 90% annual growth of um, of sales in sales from 2010 through 2015, where, you know, Sony made a better camera. It had more pixels, you know, a sharper picture. It had noise reduction, image stabilization, and it was a third cheaper than GoPros. And they're getting killed by GoPro Mm -hmm. because they didn't have all the other stuff around the camera. They had a better camera, but they didn't have a better total offer. And so that let uh, GoPro win against the competition during kind of the middle phase. But now I think you're seeing something genuinely disruptive happening as smartphones become more rugged, become genuinely waterproof, get more memory and get better cameras, you're starting to see a smartphone substitute for a GoPro in terms of, you know, you could strap it on your chest and and capture your great adventure. You could strap it on your surfboard and capture your greatest adventure. And so all of a sudden they're getting disrupted. And so it's a third type of innovation. You know, we're back out at, at, uh, 
Horizon 3 again, where GoPro really has to rethink who they are as they get disrupted by this technology that was completely inferior just a few years ago and now is rapidly pushing them out of the market. And so I think they're a great example of one company having to master three different approaches to innovation, two of them pretty radical, and the third less radical, but just as difficult. And so I want to touch on that third one there uh, a little bit more, especially for our listeners here, thinking about innovating around their product or their solution. What are some of the starting points where they could start to figure out where the best opportunities might be and how to really make sure that they're not identifying things that are around their product that might be fool's gold? Yeah. The first question you want to ask there is what what is this product? You know, what what is the product that we want to innovate around? And it's almost a question of where we not can innovate. You know, it's it's a question of what did we do yesterday? What are we going to do today? And what are we going to do again tomorrow? You know, what's that product or service that made us great and that the comp- that our customers are counting on us for? And start with that decision about, you know, what's not going to change? Because I think that's a much more stable base to build your innovation efforts on. And mm-hmm. then, then the next question is, what do we do? Like, what do our customers want from that product? You know, for GoPro, They didn't just want a rugged waterproof camera. They also wanted to be able to mount that camera and they wanted to control it and they wanted to take the raw footage and turn it into a cool video and they wanted to send it to all their friends or display it to the world. And, you know, they they wanted a lot more. And so the second question is, what are your customers trying to do with your product? How do they get value from it and how can you help with that? And then the third step is finally to innovate, you know, to finally once you've got a clear understanding of the context that customers are using your product within, then, you know, well, what can you do to make that product more useful, more valuable, more compelling for your customers? You know, and I think I I don't know uh, as much of Sony's foray into the space as you do. But when I think back to your second question, and I think of a Sony competing there versus a GoPro competing there, that true trying to get out there and understand about what their core customer is trying to actualize in their life, right? Well, who are they trying to become and what are they trying to do? And building the brand and the product and all of the related uh, accessories and experiences and websites, et cetera, around that product, it just feels like it's it's much more in tune. And I got to think that that lends to the success of something like a GoPro. And that probably if, if I'm thinking about this next wave and, and as phones potentially take over a, a nice portion of their market share, I got to be thinking about, I would go back to, again, who are the people who are still using what we're using and what else are they still trying to do in their life, right? Well, what are what are the things that they're still trying to accomplish that we can continue to be the catalyst for helping them actualize those things? Yeah. And, you know, think about it from the other standpoint, too. So put yourself in the position of this product manager. deep within the bowels of Sony, who's been given the challenge by their boss to create a better action camera. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're given this narrow mandate. And maybe they realize that they're doomed from the start. But either way, they go off and they do what they're asked to do, which is create a better action camera, which they do. And they create it for less. And they bring it to market. And it fails because it's it wasn't about the camera. It was about, you know, how do you use that camera to capture your greatest adventure? And, you know, the question is, whose fault is that? 
Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Who, you know, I, I really feel for that product manager. I've been that person, that product manager. And, you know, you work hard, you do your job and it fails and you get blamed for it. It's, you know, puts kind of a stink on your career sure. where it really was the manager's fault who organized that project and set that product manager up for failure. Well, it, it makes you start to think that, you know, when we think about real far out there, Horizon 3 disruptive uh, information, it, the approach to that, I think it's much more acceptable to say, yeah, let's do a carve out team. Let's give them autonomy. Let's let them look at the whole business venture in and of itself, right? And, and get out and understand customers, et cetera. But many times in large organizations, exactly like what you're saying, it may be to them just an iteration or an adjacency to an existing product. But if they don't take that same sort of holistic view and get the right resources that are in there to be able to help them uh, think and iterate and understand, it could equally be as doomed, right? It isn't just the fifth generation of this next camera that they need to do, but uh, there's probably some of those things that we can borrow or learn from, from the structure of how people are doing carve out groups or carve out uh, corporate startups or labs or whatever you want to call it, and maybe even bring some of that a little bit closer to the core business. Yeah. And, and, you know, it may actually be one of those things where, getting really good at one thing makes you less good at another. In other words, I don't know that if this is true for Sony or not. I can only kind of look at this from outside. I could not get anybody to go on the record about this. But, um, you know, maybe they have a, just a really good, disciplined product development management system. Mm-hmm. And so it sets things up so that the teams have all the resources they need and the, the team members they need and the goals and the targets and the business case and, and everything else. And it has turned product development to this finely tuned machine sure. that works. But, you know, they're bringing a knife to a gunfight. I mean, they're, <laughs> they're, they're creating a product when it's not about just the product. And, and they're uh, losing with a superior product because that's the terms of competition in the market. I think you you nailed it there. And it reminds me of a Steve Blank quote that I read recently of that everything that makes you an amazing, efficient machine at at executing your current business model is the antithesis of what you need over there, right? In terms of of the innovation, truly. And and that may be a little bit strong because I think there's definitely good stuff, but you absolutely do need to think about the flexibility that's in the product development process, the flexibility in who you're putting on those teams and, and the autonomy you give them, even how you compensate them or reward them. There's a number of those things that have to start to be looked at across the board to maybe, I don't even know if you can say it, optimize for innovation. That's almost a, an oxymoron there. Um, but being able to optimize for the chance of finding something of greater value that maybe is different than what you have today. So Dave, as I think about, you know, you talk about the different areas of innovation and that for new innovators, you know, they really, what you wish that you would bring to them is helping them get a complete toolkit uh, within their organizations. One of the questions that we get quite a bit is around uh, almost a layer above that of the management of these different areas. Uh, we, we have people talking about innovation portfolio management, growth boards or governance boards or other ways to be able to try to say, we're, we're going to enable the organization to be lean and fast and nimble, yet we still need this checker balance on the top that allows us to have innovation governance or other things to be able to move it forward. Do you have any thoughts or comments on how uh, organizations just getting started should look at this approach to managing innovation across their horizons or across the different tactics or practices that they're using? 
Oh, yeah. You know, this is one of those things where as soon as you use the G word, the governance word, <laughs> you know, people's eyes glaze over and, and, and they, they uh, quickly fall asleep. But it's just one of those things that's so important. And, you know, I, I think it is the job of the chief innovation officer to set up the governance structure and get it working and then work themselves out of a job. You know, like Tim Cook's famously said, if somebody has a chief innovation officer, that's that's a sign that they don't get it, you know, that they don't understand innovation. Mm-hmm. And in a way that's half right and very dangerously wrong, um, because I think any company that's that's trying to move from a very simple view of innovation, like let's take what we did yesterday and make it a, a little bit better for today, um, you know, that's that's a good place to start. But if you want to have a, a bigger toolkit, you're going to have to get more of the organization involved in innovation, which means that you're going to need a cross-organization governance system, which means you're going to need, you know, just forums and processes and policies and all that stuff, that boring stuff that goes along with governance. But if you don't get that, then it's not clear who's making decisions, who's funding the efforts, who gets the benefit of the uh, uh, of the revenues and so forth. And, and the whole thing can fall apart pretty rapidly. And so it's I think it's one of those things that's just not talked about enough, but it's tremendously important. Mm-hmm. Where do you get started? Because I can I've also seen executives get excited because they hear process or they hear policy and they're like, oh, I know how to do that stuff. So if what what's the, the first bite of the elephant that organizations should take as they think about that? Oh, I think do it small. Right. I mean, just take some important but not, you know, central product and just think about, OK, so how are we going to do this better? And so if you're if you want to explore this type of innovation I talk about in the book, then by all means, you know, find an important product and and do it once. Right. And 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 kind of set up the the governance that you need just for that project in a temporary committee. And then once you've had some success with that, then start to expand it, you know, do it again, maybe do it for a different product line and build up over time until it becomes clear to everybody that you know, the current structure isn't quite working and that you have to, you have to do something different. I mean, you know, structure and process are and should always be trailing indicators of innovation success, right? I mean, you, you, and, and that can be a really hard thing to overcome that you, you set up your innovation processes and you set up the structure and the roles and so forth around the last successful innovation your company had. Mm-hmm. Well, if you want to do something different, well, that's going to get in the way of it. And that's that's what one of the things that makes innovation so difficult. But if you've got a governance system that lets you governance is basically just a forum where people can propose new things and get approval for it. If you've got something like that, then you have a chance of succeeding, at least in a small way. And then if you succeed in a small way, you can succeed in a a larger way and and so forth. And, And then you've got a chance of really making a difference. Dave, I want to ask you a question about your book that I love asking authors. Is there a part that you think is either underappreciated? You know, you thought it was going to resonate even more with people and and you still think it should and you want to make sure you get it out there. Or on the flip side, something that's really surprised you, something that has really resonated with people that maybe it almost made the cutting room floor uh, and you're really glad that it's in there now. Well, you know, I think nobody reads chapter seven of a book and, <laughs> and, 
you know, I've started whenever I read a, a new innovation book, I make it a point to try and read chapter seven, just because it often takes a while to work up the argument and put things together. And, you know, it's it's often by chapter six, seven or eight that you really get to the crux of the book, the important new things, and that to get there you often have to reread a lot of the same stuff that everybody already knows. But, you know, if you're an author, you, you want to put together the whole argument, even if some of it is building on what somebody's already said. And so I think the idea in my book that gets buried in chapter seven is this whole idea of what's the business case. And the whole idea that if you want to have multiple different types of innovation, that can be a very low risk, high reward approach to innovation. But You've got to set up the business case correctly so that you can have local investment targets, but global profits. Mm. And that's so important. That's the end of another episode of Inside Outside Innovation. Big thanks to David for sharing his expertise. We'd love to connect with you through Twitter at the IO Podcast or on our website, insideoutside.io. If you've got a minute, leave us a review on iTunes, because what would a podcast about innovation be without iterations based on customer feedback? Until next time, go out and innovate.